Good morning. I think um, I'm not going to be anywhere for a while, which is kind of cool. I've been I've been in and out, and um, I'm so grateful for Emmett last week um, doing a phenomenal job talking about point number three in this current um, series of talks we're doing on helping children understand the gospel, um, talking about the type of soil that our children are. Um, and I want to reiterate that um, my audience this morning is you, parents. It's not our children. Uh, reiterate again, as I said on week one of this series, is um, Radical Kids does not exist to be a surrogate parent. It's not free babysitting uh, so that you can get free moments. If you need free moments, you need to consider that before you become a parent. Um, there are none. That's why I'm looking forward to their graduation of high school, at which point in time... I'm going to lose my mind. I'm going to have every cool thing I've ever wanted because I'm paying for nothing else beyond that point in time. So if you wanted free moments, don't become a parent. Um, it, is, it is there to equip, train, prepare kids for the gospel, um, for service and ministry in the local church and among the nations. It's a tool in your belt to do your job, fathers, as priests and heads of your home. And so we're coming at this because, you know, if you have children, you walk back there, it's off the chain. Like we have one of the greatest problems a church can have, and that is what to do with everybody. Um, it's a great problem to have, uh, particularly in light of the fact that we don't really cater <laughs> to coolness. I don't know if you figured out, but we don't do anything cool. Like there's no fog machine behind us, no great light show, and you know there's no puppets walking around in the back. It's we we kind of I've never seen a puppet walking around the church. I'm just saying, I, although that wouldn't be un I mean that could be kind of cool. I don't know. Anyway, um, we we our goal is to lift Jesus up. I mean I don't know if you noticed that, but we're kind of crazy about Jesus. That's the second person of the Trinity is sort of our focus, you know. The triune God of the universe and the second person came to take the wrath of God for us so that we repent and believe we get adopted as children and treated with mercy, grace and love, not with justice. And so we, we want to exalt Jesus in everything we say and do. And, and I think what's really cool is God is God has honored that and he's grown that and 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 he's touching the nations with that. I mean, you're going to have opportunities in the coming years to to be able to engage our particular people group on United States soil, as well as the soil of their home geopolitical nation. And so the Lord's doing work that can only be uh, attested to and honored by saying He has made it happen. And so in our equipping of you, we, we are giving you this series for the purpose of all those kids in the back are getting older. I mean, you know, they're, they're little, they're 11 year olds. They're not little anymore walking around, running around. There, there are viable young men back there ready to graduate into student ministry in the next couple of years. And, um, and you, parents, what are you going to do with them? They're asking baptism questions, salvation questions, God questions, Trinity questions. And it's your job to answer them. And so we want to equip you. For that, And so one of the things I've said in the past, I want to say again, if you will be here 
and you listen, we will equip you. You you will walk away knowing what you need to know. Then you got to execute it. You got to do it, right? And so this morning we want to put more tools in your tool belt as a parent, moms and dads. Um, and we're going to answer the fourth question of five. Next week we'll answer the last question. And then we'll begin to move back into gospel faith in the Old Testament uh, and, and begin to work on through the rest of this year. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray. And then we're going to jump back into Matthew chapter 13 and uh, answer the question, how do we sow, tend, and harvest? So let's pray. Father, right now in the very awesome name of Jesus, um, I ask that according to the reputation, the mission of the Son of God, you would grace us with the Spirit to exalt Jesus, to make much of the Son, that we may see you and revel in you. I ask that you would open us up to receive what has been written in your word and some of the implications from that. I ask that you would cause our minds to be cleared, our hearts to be prepared and cultivated. And ask that you would produce the fruit of the gospel in our parents and in the lives of their children. And that you would launch a movement from here to the surrounding reaches of our county, to the United States and to the nations. Would you be pleased to do something so awesome from such a minuscule place as Three Rivers Community Church? Make your name great today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And then we're going to pop on over to verse 18. I'm going to read this passage again. We've hung out in this parable of the sower. Um, And we're going to answer the question, how do we sow, tend, and harvest? Okay? Um, Chapter 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house, and he sat beside the sea. Great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. The birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And in verse 18, Jesus comes back and he describes and exposits, makes a little more clearer, interpreting the parable that he has just spoken. He said, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, and he understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. 
in answering the question, how do we sow, tend, and harvest? We've, we've dealt with, with a lot of information so far. We have, uh, we're coming full circle, and we've dealt with some pretty intense stuff. Who is the sower? You remember? God the Father, by the work of the Son and the Holy Spirit, is currently doing the work of sowing the gospel. We're partners in that. We're ambassadors. As, as followers of Christ and as parents, we are sowing the gospel. The seed is none other than the gospel. The meta-narrative, my favorite word. The grand story of creation, the fall, the work of redemption, and the consuming, the consummation of all of history in the kingdom of God and a new heaven and a new earth. Emmett answered the question last week, what kind of soil are the hearts of our children? And some of that's hard to hear, isn't it? But I think it's interesting that the scriptures teach us those things. It's just sometimes not very comfortable to hear what God has to say about us. Which, by the way, total side note. And I hit this when I ask, what is the, the seed? The good news is no news at all if you don't understand the bad news. One of the things we wrestle with is if you read, and, and I'm not under the impression that everybody reads 1700s Puritan preachers. Um, but by the way, that's when the Great Awakenings took place. We ain't got no great awakening. We got a great deadening that blankets our land. But you read those Puritan pastors, and boy, they talk a lot about the bad news. And they come on the backside of those lengthy sermons, and then they hit you with the good news. And what's crazy is the good news is immeasurably, amazingly awesome when you understand the bad news. And so, um, the bad news, this is who we are. This is what our children are. And these are the things we have to deal with. Well, in light of that, how do we sow? How do we tend and harvest? We're really going to deal with sowing and tending and really come on the backside of next week and deal with the harvesting question. But how do we sow and how do we tend in this kind of soil that's in the back right now? And, and by the way, that's maybe sitting in this room right now. Your salvation is more of an issue of persevering in the gospel for your entire life than it is some stake in the ground 20 years ago that you never returned to. You need to understand that biblically. There is no such thing as heaven gained without a continual following of Jesus on a daily basis. The scriptures warn us about turning back. The book of Hebrews is a grand warning to those who follow Jesus in light of what they are suffering about turning back and going back. And he draws on the example of Israel coming out of Egyptian slavery, which is such a gospel image and historical reality. How they desired to go back into slavery. And he said, don't be like them. There is a Sabbath rest to enter, and that Sabbath rest being Jesus. This is a daily, daily remembering the good news in light of the bad news, and today following Jesus. Which is why it does no good to get your kids to raise their hand, pray a prayer, and walk away and think it's all good, and never disciple them. This is why the statistics are showing us our kids leave Christian schools, public schools, and there's not much difference in the statistics, and they walk onto a college campus and leave the faith. 
There's a reason for that, and it's our fault. Because I have a hunch that we have a tendency to teach morality, be a good little person, make me feel better that you're not going to hell, and as long as I'm happy and you do good stuff and make good decisions all is well. Well, that's not where we want to be. You know what I'm saying? I don't want my kid walking away as a statistic. Because I didn't do my job discipling my child into the faith and took a lot of things for granted. I want my boys, when they walk onto a college campus and are challenged, to be able to get up out of their bed, roll out of bed, and make another decision. Today, I will follow Jesus. Even if it costs me my life and I look like a fool, I am going to come after Jesus. Does that make sense? I don't think there's a person in here that doesn't want that for their kid, right? Nobody's going, yeah, I'm kind of okay if my kid walks away. I'm like, sure. Nobody's going to say that. We want them to persevere in the faith. And so we have to come to this issue and deal with it biblically, deal with the bad news, highlight the good news, and stay on task with that and never assume it. So how do we sow? How do we tend? And how are we going to come back and harvest the fruit of the gospel? Well, here we go. The first point in sowing and tending. And it's a no-duh moment. Preach the gospel at every turn. Listen, guys. You cannot assume the gospel. You must not assume the gospel. You can't say it to your children and walk away and just assume that they remember. We often forget. We often start making decisions, don't we? That don't reflect the gospel. Much less a young child still developing and growing. Never assume the gospel. We were riding to Walmart, that glorious mecca of stuff, the stuff mart. And and I had my oldest with me. And, and just to check in, I said, hey, dude, tell me, what's the bad news? What's the good news? And this is the one that, that no doubt I think there's work going on there. And the spirit is regenerating. And I see that work progressing. And he still had trouble articulating the bad news and the good news. I can't ever assume that. That it's just there and it's, boom, let me bust it out of my lips. Dad, here it is. So we've got to understand that at every turn, we must be preaching the good news to our children. Dads, moms, car rides are great for this. Trips to the grocery store are great for this. Bedtime is great for this. Lunchtime is great for this. Dinner time is great for this. Don't assume the gospel. I just had this thought. We don't, in, in Christian circles, we don't do dinner time much anymore. Like, I can't tell you the people I run across whose lives they've sacrificed the gospel for the sake of idolatry and they pursue all manner of things they think will make them happy to the exclusion of community time in the family where they can get their kids eye to eye across from a meal and preach to them the good news. They may be the best athlete on the face of the planet, but if they die and miss the gospel, epic fail. Because we wanted something more than Jesus. Parents, don't let that be you. Don't let your kid be a three-star letterman and gain the whole world 
lose their soul. There is one thing that remains. And that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Don't miss that for something our culture thinks is so hot. And, and, and I'm, I'm, dude, I'm the kid that takes my kids to Falcons training camp. That's a year, I mean, this is year seven. We know the players by name. We sit on the grass and watch them hit each other. It's awesome. But I will never trade the gospel for that. I'll trade everything before I trade that time with my kids, eye to eye, face to face, to talk about the gospel. We've got to have that as a value. Preach the gospel at every turn. Romans ten seventeen. If you would follow me there, then I'm going to give you some, some pointers here to follow this up. Romans ten seventeen. You know, I've said this before. Following up with one of my, my missiology professor in seminary, Dr. Mike Barnett, who some of you guys got to meet. She took perspectives and he came and did a class for us last year. Dr. Barnett always referred to the scriptures as the manual. And I have a habit of doing that because it's the manual. If you ever want to know what to do, it's in the manual. This is the complete guide to parenting. You don't need to go to Barnes and Noble and get the idiot's guide on parenting. Seriously. This is it. The idiot's guide to parenting. And I need it. Because I am an idiot. This is the guide to parenting. If you need to know what to do, it is in the manual. It's in the manual. Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. So faith, obviously, in the gospel comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Well, what? Let's back up. Pick up verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Dude, here's the glorious promise of the gospel. If you call on Jesus, He will save you. There is no person on the face of the planet who can say, I'm unsavable. There's no child back there that's unsavable. You're not unsavable. Your family members aren't unsavable. If you call on Him, He will save you. That makes me happy. Because i got cold, dead friends. That if they will just call on the Lord, He will put a new heart in them. Change their desires. Transform them. That's freaking awesome. If you call on Him, He will save you. Well, then how then will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without anyone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Preach the gospel to your children at every single turn. Every moment, every opportunity, preach the good news. Well, the promise is if they call on the Lord, he will save them. 
but they've got to hear. And guess what? Every single person in this room has beautiful feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? Guess what? You have beautiful feet. You carry the gospel. Take it to your children relentlessly. Go hard to them with the good news. Well, I'm going to preach it to them. Number one, tell them the bad news. You know, it's easy. And this is, I think, a, this is a real test on whether or not we're really ashamed of the gospels if we're willing to share the bad news before we tell the good news. I dealt with this a few weeks ago. But you know what? Your children need to know the bad news. They need to know it. They need to know the story of creation and the fall. The bad news is God is rightly angry at the rebellion. Which, by the way, parents, it's okay to get angry when your kids rebel because that's how Father feels toward us. The Bible teaches us that anger is right. We just should avoid sinning in our anger. Those become opportunities for the gospel. When they rebel against your authority, it's okay to be angry. Because that becomes an opportunity to say, and like our parents sinned in the garden and rebelled, Father is angry at them and all of their children. And He's going to mete out justice. Justice has to be done. Because He's a just God. Remember, we dealt with that a few weeks ago. Tell them the bad news. Read them the stories and Scripture. But secondly, make sure we follow that up with the glorious good news. Because then the good news really looks amazing. But here's what happened. The Father sent the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to come and take my rebellion and yours. He took justice for us. Father killed him. This is the question I asked as we were talking through that. I said, who killed Jesus? And the answer was right. God killed Jesus. Exactly. He executed him as a just action because he is a God of justice. So that if I would crawl up under Jesus, he would adopt me as a child, give me love and grace, and I walk free. That's the glorious good news that really looks good when you tell them the bad news. They have to know this. You've got to know this. This is the bad news and the good news make thankful hearts. You know? Good news without the bad news just kind of makes moral hearts. But you tell the bad news and you tell that glorious good news. I I come, I ain't got anything to bring. It's just, thank you. And worship and life lived. Tell the good news, tell the bad news. Tell the good news, tell the bad news multiple times daily. Again, don't take this for granted. And I'm I'm preaching to me. Because dude, I dude, we live life, right? We got jobs, right? You you know what I mean? It's easy to just sit, veg, turn on television, and relax. We have to take every opportunity to tell the good news and the bad news. Fourth, pray and speak blessings over your children. Pray over your children. Speak blessings over your children. Brad did a phenomenal job a ways back, and these these are all online, talking about blessing the congregation, blessing your children. This idea of intentionally speaking over our children the promises of Scripture and the purpose of God. 
We speak these blessings over our families, our children, and our wives, men. We are invoking the Father's name and specific blessings spoken for the benefit of the one we're speaking it to. Crack the Scriptures. Read those over your children and your families. Construct blessings on principles of Scripture. Look your children in the eye as you bless them. Point number two. And this will be the final point and take a minute or two to unpack. We've got to make sure we preach the gospel at every turn. And then secondly, be discerning as to the kind of soil that our children are and train them accordingly. I posted up on Twitter and Facebook this morning an article that Emmett referenced and used last week for you to go and read on discipline and disciplining your children in a gospel manner and knowing the difference between the kind of child you have. Because, you know, some of us have law keepers. You know, they're good at doing the law. You put a rule down and they'll move heaven and earth to obey it. Then you got the one like my littlest who move heaven and earth to not obey it. And it's easy to take the obedience to the rule as moral good and substitute that for gospel belief. And my morally good child can go to hell just as fast as my rebellious one can. So I have to make sure that just because he did what I said... That doesn't necessarily mean that in his heart there's been a transformation that's taking place. And just because the rebellious one rebelled doesn't mean there's not transformation going off. And I have to be discerning on coming to that. So, first, notice I said we've got to be discerning as the kind of soil our children are and then train them accordingly. First, we have to be discerning. How does this happen? Now, for most of us men in here, that's a strange word. Because some are just naturally born being created in the image of God with a discerning nature, such as most of our wives and women. And if you're married, you know that. They tried to tell you a hundred times. They knew it. We ignored the warning signs and then we had to pick up the pieces. But all of us. Every single one of us can develop a sense of discernment that serves the church, our families, and others. Hebrews 5.14 The solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And I don't have time to deal with this passage in full. Just to say this, number one, the writer of Hebrews speaks this to the entire church. Secondly, the assumption is all have discernment and all have the capacity to train that discernment. So solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. In other words, the training of discernment takes constant work. There's no, there are no days off in training discernment. By the way, there are no days off in discipleship. Following Jesus is a discipline. I take days off from CrossFit because things hurt. I don't take days off from following Jesus. So, if I'm going to train discernment, it takes constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Well, what is the solid food that trains the power of discernment? Verse 13 gives the answer. You can go back and look at this later. It's the word of righteousness. And what is that word of righteousness? 
It's the gospel. It's important to understand that the gospel is the sounding board. The gospel being the bad news and the good news. All packaged together in this grand story of God and history. The gospel is the sounding board for good and evil. If there's no grasp of the gospel, there's no training on what good and evil is. It's the sounding board for honor and shame. The gospel is the ground of all things and it is the foundation of truth. What is truth? It is discovered in the grand story of the gospel of which the scriptures testify to. The gospel is the grand story of the whole Bible. And when we train ourselves in the gospel, we can easily spot lies and sense when something is not right. So, while practicing discernment, we have to train our children as individuals and not train them all in one way. Which, if you're feeling the weight of that, welcome to the club. That makes parenting our children in the gospel challenging because we have to know our children well enough and discern the intricacies of their makeup to know how best to train each one of them to hear, understand, and respond to the gospel. And that makes me nervous. Because it's easy to just blanket over them. Right? Isn't that the easier way out? But I have to discern who they are, how they're wired, and how to make the gospel make sense to those ears. Now, this is where we come back to the parable. Jesus in this parable mentioned four kinds of soil. And I think it's vital to understand that only one type of soil, soil meaning life, soul, person, produce fruit. Therefore, only one soil is a soil that was transformed and saved, and that was the good soil. So, what are these kinds of soil that perhaps represent our children? Number one, it's the path. The path was hardened and uninterested in the gospel. It landed on a hard path. It flittered off to the side. Birds came and ate the seed. Perhaps the best description here is a description of adults or older children, teens who've not been exposed to the gospel from their conception. Now, at this point, I'm just going to give you some thoughts here on how to deal with this. Perhaps the hardened path, it could, could be a young child raised in your house. But I, I often see in dealing with people that those really hardened to the gospel are those who've had no exposure to the gospel early on. They've been hardened to life. They've been hardened toward God because they come out that way. And then life and circumstances and lies from the evil one, the blindness of unbelief, continues to harden their soul. And the gospel has a tendency to bounce off. These are the people who have zero interest or clue in anything transcendent. These are the ones who are deceived and intentionally remain in spiritual deceit because of the rebellion and their fallen and willful repression of the truth. So the question is, how do we break this kind of soil up? How do we break up the hard-packed soil of rebellion? Well, I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus didn't tell us that, did he? But there are some tools that we can glean from Scripture to help. 
One of those tools is apologetics. That is the defense of the gospel. That is the practical application of the gospel to unique circumstances. And I say this in the worldview class that we run, and we'll be running that again this semester, starting in September-ish. Apologetics is no silver bullet. It, it, it's not the gospel. Apologetics will not save you. It's a tool in the belt of the Christian to defend the good news that will save you. But it is a useful tool. It is a tool to help answer questions on who is God? Who are you? Who am I? What is the Bible? And who cares? And it is a tool that can be used to break up hard-packed ground in the life of an individual who truly, truly has no clue who God is and who they are. And has no interest in it. Another tool in the belt of a person working with a, a person with the path type soul is patience. Working with this type of person requires much patience. And a hit and run evangelism strategy rarely works. That usually pushes them farther away. Which, by the way, you know where I think in our culture we'll begin to deal with some really hard packed souls is when the church begins to take seriously its mandate to foster and adopt rather than the government doing the job. Because when I picked mine up, dude, you're talking about hard-packed. You're talking about resistant. You're talking about rebellious. There were two years worth of hellacious training that had already been taking place. Now it's my job to break that up. Nearly drove me crazy. Still driving me crazy. But that's where we're going to see it. Because it's real easy to talk about the other kinds of soils, not that hard-packed soil, because those are the ones hard to work with. Those who haven't been exposed to the gospel. Those who've not ever heard the good news. Which, by the way, I'm still convinced in our town, there are 86,000 people hadn't heard. They're not connected to the local church at all. I'm not convinced everybody in our local churches have heard. Hard-packed. Life has dealt them a grievous blow. And God becomes the object of their anger. Bitterness. We have to be skilled at breaking that up. If we're going to engage our culture, we've got to be skilled at breaking up hard path soil. Jesus mentioned another kind of soil. Rocky soil. This is the kind of soil that had a quick reception of the gospel. But difficulty causes them to turn away. This, in my estimation, may be the majority of my generation. We hear some semblance of the good news, but there's no bad news. And there's no expectation taught to me on who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplishes. As a matter of fact, what I'm taught is if I come to Jesus, He'll make my life better. He'll fix all my problems. And what happens to that person is when difficulty arises and their expectation isn't met, what happens? The plant withers. So when difficulty does happen, this person begins to question this partial message they've received and they become apathetic or even antagonistic to the gospel. Maybe that's some of you in here. Man, if I come to Jesus, He'll fix my problem. He'll fix my marriage. 
He'll fix my, my kid. He'll fix my messed up life. And when things don't start turning the corner, it's like, God, who do you think you are? How do we break up this kind of soil? Again, Jesus didn't tell us, but there are some gardening tools we can use. Number one, we've got to start with a proper proclamation of the gospel. We have to make sure we're communicating to our children and to the adults around us that Jesus doesn't promise ease or freedom from difficulty, but rather he promises that we will have difficulty. Did he not say that? You will have difficulty. You will have trouble in this world, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus promises that if they treated him that way, they're going to bypass us. You treat us that way. We have to make sure we tell the story, the bad news and the good news, what Jesus accomplishes. And we've got to be able to deal with the challenge of evil and suffering. Notice Jesus says when difficulty arises, they wither away. What are you going to do when difficulty strikes you? What are you going to do when cancer comes knocking at your door? You know what I'm saying? The Christian worldview is the only worldview that deals a proper answer to that issue. And if you miss the gospel, you miss the answer to the question. We have the glorious promise in Scripture that God doesn't bypass difficulty, but He redeems difficulty for our good and His glory. So that there is nothing that He will drop on us that will not be for our good. And for His great praise. That's awesome! Because I promise you, you won't escape difficulty. Your children won't, guys. Don't promise your children something the Scriptures don't promise them. Difficulty is going to slap my three boys in the face real hard one day. And the question isn't, will it? The question is, what are they going to do when that happens? Will they fall onto the glorious gospel of Jesus and a glorious trust that He's got me? Or will they shake their fist at Him and walk away? I don't want my kids to be on rocky soil. I want them to rightly understand the gospel. Which, by the way, Joseph... Genesis 37 on. Job. And by the way, here's your, here's your kicker. Jesus. The greatest answer to the problem of suffering in Scripture. The Son of God. He suffered. He took my sin. And went to the cross. Right? But the glorious reality. God raised Him from the dead. You know what? Because I'm a child of God. Difficulty may kill me. But guess who's going to raise me? Jesus mentioned another kind of soil, thorny soil. Hearing the gospel. But this person had a concern with greater and more important things. And those greater and more important things, those things that were really on the calendar, those things that kind of like, yeah, I just kind of schedule over that, and that's really vital for my job, and that's vital for my survival. And those more important things choke out the gospel. And there's just nothing there. This person may show some interest in spiritual things, but they wax and wane in their pursuit of Jesus. This person is always looking for a spiritual fix while trying to have their most vital pursuit of something else. 
This person will sacrifice the church for the sake of their ambitions or false conceptions of the church and therefore find themselves outside of community and therefore choking out the gospel. By the way, I'm going to say this, and if it absolutely offends, I don't care. I'm continuing to find and uncover in conversations with people a disdain for the local church and a feeling of apathy or unimportance about the local church and looking to replace the local church with other things. I'm trying not to be angry. I even threw this out there in a statement somebody made, uh, another person made on Twitter. And dude, there are two people who like got jacked up about it. And I didn't reply back with what I wanted to say. But here's what I, never mind, I'm not even going to say what I wanted to say. Because then I would be in sin because it's not coming from love, it's coming out of hate. Jesus did not die simply just for me. Read this carefully. He died for the, read Ephesians 5, the church. He died to redeem the church. The church is not irrelevant. It's vital. The object of the affection of the cross is the ecclesia. Those of faith, those who believe the gospel, banded together under the mission of the gospel together in community, and there's no substitute. You cannot be disconnected from the church and be in. You are out. Church discipline is the setting aside of those in constant rebellion against the Lord outside of the community of the church. When you separate yourself from the church, you are practicing church discipline on yourself. You're setting yourself outside the community of believers. You have to be connected to the church. It's not unimportant. It's vital. It's essential. It's central. And you cannot raise your child to ignore the church and it be okay. And if... If you find in the scriptures that the church isn't essential, tear it out, bring it to me. I'll put ketchup on it and eat it. I promise you it's central. Read the manual. Jesus died to redeem a people for himself. And the Bible calls, and listen, don't read onto the church your misconception of the church through bad experiences in the church by people who aren't shepherds leading the church. The Bible warns us, Paul wrote to Timothy to shepherd the church. And he said there are people who snuck in false teachers, false shepherds. He called them wolves. And he said you watch out for them because they will mislead the people of God. Just because we have a bad experience inside a, quote, church by people who shouldn't be leading a, quote, church, doesn't mean the church is unimportant. It means that person should be punched in the face. I apologize, Father, I repent. I, I don't know, maybe they should be. I, I Thank you. Nehemiah thirteen twenty five, read it later, you'll take great joy in that. But but in all seriousness, the Bible gives clear instruction on the role of an overseer and an elder. 
And it's not to be a professional psychologist. It is to be a shepherd who often fights off wolves and points the church, the sheep, in the right direction. They're not supposed to be passive. They're not supposed to be weak. They are strong, willed fighters who are willing to war with the gospel in their hands and their feet for the object of Jesus' affection, the church. Don't substitute the people of God for a cheap imitation. And our children need to understand that they are not to shun that They're not to sacrifice the church for the sake of their ambition or their false conceptions of the church and therefore find themselves outside of community and therefore choking out the gospel. And the reason I chose that as my example of one of the things that choke out the gospel here is because I see it as a recurring theme in so many people who call the name of Jesus in our town. The person, the thorny soil, shuns repentance and they buy into a cheap and easy gospel that has no justice, only love to be gained if they do good enough. This person will pursue their ambition to the exclusion of the people, the kingdom, and the king. So how do we break up this kind of soil? Once again, Jesus doesn't say, but there are some gardener's tools in our belt that we can use. Number one, an exhortation to repent. Hebrews 13.3 says, but exhort one another. What's exhorting? It's a strong encouragement. It's beyond a, hey, let's go. It's a, get up. Let's rock. Let's go. You're slagging behind. Let's get up. Exhort one another. Every day as long as it's called today. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This person who wax and wanes in their pursuit of the Lord and other things that they think are more superior, hardening out and choking out the gospel, need to be exhorted to not be deceived by sin and then to get up and move. And you know what? It's our job to love them that way. Listen, if I see sin and don't deal with it, I hate you. If you see sin and don't deal with it, you hate them. Letting people go is not love. It's hatred. And if I see things choking out the gospel in my child and I let it go because I want to be their best bud and don't want them to rebel, dude, they're already rebelling. Does that make sense? If I see sin and don't deal with it, I hate the person who's in sin. I need to exhort them to repent. then I need to model a life of setting biblical priorities. Show this person how to set spiritual priorities. Help them schedule activities that feed the soul. Teach them how to have personal devotion and reading and meditating on Scripture. Make sure they get connected to the church and stay connected to the church. Which I think is our greatest challenge in Roman Floyd County. How to do community in the church. I'm going to be saying more about that in the coming weeks. And then fourth, finally, Jesus said there's good soil. This soil is regenerated by the Spirit. The gospel is properly communicated. The gospel is received and repentance flourishes in a selfless pursuit of the King and His kingdom. 
This person was dead. And by the miracle of the gospel, this person was awakened to their state of condemnation by the holy and triune God in humility because they cannot save themselves or be good enough. They see and savor the glorious cross where their justice was taken by Jesus on their behalf. And rather than receive justice forever in hell, they receive the love, goodness, grace, and kindness of the king in repentance of their self-effort. And they embrace and run to King Jesus for the purpose of living a life that worships Father, Son, and Spirit forever, even if it costs them life, career, status, education, money, fame, and time, because Jesus is better than life. Good soil produces various levels of fruit. Just as a side note, we're all going to produce differently. And that doesn't mean that my oldest should be compared to my middle in their fruit production. Fruit production is good. And don't compare them, but just note that some produce 30, some produce 60, some produce 100. And you know what? If there's gospel fruit for that, I will rejoice and continue to train and cultivate and encourage. So don't compare my fruit to your fruit. Let's rejoice that there's fruit at all coming from this cold, dead individual that was awakened to life by the gospel. If you believe the gospel this morning, by the way, you're a walking miracle. You didn't have that in you. I didn't have it in me. If there's fruit coming out of any of us, for that we will give thanks. But good soil is awakened and producing gospel fruit. Conclusion. Number one, maybe our response this morning to this parable is that we need to repent. Maybe you, because you've got to go and apply this to your children. I can't tell you how to do that. That's going to happen in those intricate moments at the dinner table, in the car, when they go into bed at night. You've got to apply this. But for you sitting here, maybe you're one of the soils that's not good soil. Maybe you're, you're just not good soil. You recognize a hardness to things of the gospel. Maybe there are difficulties that you didn't sign up for and they're choking out the gospel. Maybe there are inferior activities that you're worshiping as superior and they're choking out the gospel. Your response this morning during our time, is, it's real simple. It's repent. It's turn. It's leave the rebellion and move toward righteousness. It's not complicated. It's just do what's right. Doing what's right is believing the gospel, coming to Jesus. It's that simple. You can do nothing. And we all can, if you believe the gospel, respond in corporate worship. Worship is communion with Father in which believers by grace center their minds' attention and hearts' affection on the Lord, humbly glorifying Father in response to the revelation of His glory and His majesty. By the way, I want you to know worship requires discipline. Worship is not something that you can just walk up in here and turn the switch on. It's a mental a spiritual and emotional engagement in response to what He has done for you in saving you. And if you're in the gospel, guess what? You're not guilty. You go free and He's adopted you as a child. And that's worth turning on the gauge and worshiping Him this morning. 
If you have a child that you can speak the gospel to this morning, then guess what? You have reason to worship because there's infinite hope and potential there. Right? If you are alive right now, there's hope in the gospel to proclaim it to yourself and remember the grace of God to you to take your justice for you, to let you go free and thereby respond to Him and worship. So why don't we do that? Let's do that this morning. Let me pray for you. Father, um, I this morning give thanks to you for the glorious reality of the gospel and the infinite potential that's running up and down these halls as we hear them. The infinite potential that's sitting in this room to make you look amazing in our worship of you. So, Father, would you, by the Spirit and through the risen Son, move your people to worship in their actions and in their singing? Would you move your people to adore you in song? Would you move your people to adore you in deed and in word? And I ask that you would bring for yourself a great swell of praise from your people. Pray, Father, that you would bind the evil one and any influence on our thinking, any inferior value that would set itself up against us making much of you. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd win the conflict in minds over the gospel. Pray that you would make your name great, please. And so we want to come and bring our praise. And so, would you receive that? Would you enjoy that? And in that, would you give us great joy?